Good morning, UPC. I know many of you, but for those of you who don't know me, let me begin with a bit of an introduction. I am a Washington local, and I've worked at UPC for over 10 years now, first on the Urban and Global Missions team, and more recently with our senior leadership on our missional community strategy and facilitating some of our intercultural ministry trainings. For the last, years, last five years, I've been building community with young adults and I'm currently working with international students. You may not see me around quite as much these days because this last year I went back to school for a second master's in museum studies. So I'm currently a full-time UW student and I'm, while I'm working here at UPC. So I have a lot going on. So I'm super happy to be here this morning with all of you and to get to spend my time here. I'm continuing to work at UPC as ministry coordinator with outreach for our international student community here at the International Friendship House. In my free time, I have two favorite hobbies. One of them is traveling, or even just travel planning. I love a good spreadsheet. Any other people who like to use spreadsheets when they're traveling? Yeah, I can see some uh, like-minded folks. I just love making travel itineraries. I can spend hours looking up flights, trying to find deals, trying to put together the best possible schedule. I, when I'm not travel planning, the other thing that I really love to do is throwing dinner parties. I love hosting. I absolutely love organizing spaces where strangers can come together and become friends, bringing people together who may not otherwise ever interact. I find so much joy creating spaces where people can feel truly at home. Amazingly, this is my current job here at UPC, throwing a weekly party every Thursday night at the International Friendship House. If you were able to join the UPC Open Houses this November, you know that UPC has six residential properties with over 30 college students and young adults living and doing ministry together. The International Friendship House is the oldest and longest running of our residential missional communities. It started in the 1970s by a former international student named Gassat Bello and his wife Perla, who had come from the Philippines. When Gassat was a student at SPU in the 1960s, he dreamed that one day UPC would have a home away from home for international students. A decade later, this dream of his became a reality. The first IFH was located under what is now Larson Hall. So when you're in Larson Hall, you can imagine there was a house of international students here at one point. Over the years, the physical house has moved many times. But the vision for being a residential home for students to live and do ministry has carried on for around 50 years now, and it's a privilege to get to be a part of it in this season. This fall, we had the immense joy of expanding the ministry of the International Friendship House to a second house, into Rainier House, which is just north of the North parking lot. We now have 11 students and young adults living in these two houses. These are amazing scholars and just lovely human beings who come from all around the world. These residents have made a commitment to hospitality, to reach out to the international student community in the name of Jesus, and to share love through cooking meals. Each week this last fall, these residents have been cooking for over 60 students per week, which is a really big feat. But the International Friendship House Thursday night gatherings that these residents host are a weekly reminder to me of God's great hospitality towards us, a picture of a banquet where we're all invited in. This week, we delve deeper into the sermon series, God's Great Plans. I've entitled this sermon, You're Cordially Invited, 
to help us dig into God's great plan, inviting each one of us into the kingdom of God through his hospitality towards us. We are cordially invited into the great banquet. Join me in prayer. God, we invite your spirit to speak to us this morning through your word and through this message. We invite you to make the scripture alive to each one of us, individually and corporately as a church, and cut to our hearts. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us, and restore us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today's scripture comes from Luke 14. This is page 849 in your pew Bibles. You can take a minute to find it, and I encourage you, if you're able, to leave it open um, because we'll be working through this story throughout the message. So in Luke 14, chapter 1, the author, Luke, sets the stage for the story we're going to be looking at. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. So our story begins here. Jesus has invited, been invited to dine at the house of a prominent Pharisee. But the attitude behind this invitation was not hospitality, but an opportunity to put Jesus to the test. We learn this a little later in the passage in Luke 14, verses 2 through 6. Just then, in front of Jesus, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? but they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. This entire situation is a trap. The man with dropsy, which is an older term for an edema or swelling associated with heart failure, was most likely invited to this dinner party specifically to lure Jesus into healing. The leader of the Pharisees has invited Jesus to challenge him, to provoke him into doing a miracle on the Sabbath. In Jewish law, the Sabbath was a day of rest, a holy day, in honor of God resting on the seventh day of creation. Over time, religious custom had added layers of restrictions on activities on the Sabbath, and Jesus was often critiqued for doing miracles on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter two, Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees for picking grain on the Sabbath. Jesus responds, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But here, Jesus finds a creative way of turning the trap in the other direction. He directly asks them if it is lawful to cure people on the Sabbath and raises a question about compassion Wouldn't they help a child or an animal that is in trouble on the Sabbath? How is this any different? Jesus stands up to them, but also calls on their human compassion. This is an uncomfortable moment, and no one knows how to respond. Jumping a little further into the story, Jesus directly addresses his host in verses 12 through 14. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus here, knowing his host's intentions, knowing that he's invited Jesus to test him, that he's invited this man with an illness as a bait, 
also knows that he's invited his other guests for purposes of political alliance and nepotism. Jesus warns the Pharisee, don't just invite people who will pay you back. The purpose of hospitality is not to get quid pro quo. Hospitality should be done with love, with generosity, with human compassion. God is the one who will repay. The end of the story is not gaining power in the world, but doing what's right in God's eyes. That's the only thing that will matter in the end. This leads to a potentially awkward moment in the room, which is broken by the words of another guest in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Or blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So perhaps this was a common phrase cried out to break the ice, or even a genuine sentiment of affirmation of Jesus. It channeled a longing to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be present when the kingdom of God would break forth. But it also suggests a belief on the part of this guest of being an insider, an assumption of being one of the ones chosen to eat bread in the kingdom of God. After all, this was a dinner party of the most elite religious leaders. Wouldn't the people in this room be the blessed ones? In response, Jesus tells a banquet parable in verses 16 through 24. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus tells a parable that would be incredibly insulting to his host and the religious elite. But the message of this parable would be radically welcoming to all those considered on the outside of society. Jesus was continually critiqued throughout his ministry for who he chose to spend his time with. While he, he did accept invitations to dine with Pharisees like he's doing here, he also associated with Gentiles and the unclean. When Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to be his disciple, he dines with tax collectors. In Mark chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, we read that this upset the Pharisees. They ask him, why would he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This message of the kingdom coming to outsiders permeates all that Jesus does and says, which is one of the biggest reasons that the religious leaders have such a problem with him. Even in his hometown, Jesus was rejected for announcing that the kingdom of God was here, but that it was coming for outsiders. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 30, in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and reads his mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. At first, his neighbors are very pleased and speak well of him until Jesus changes direction and begins to tell stories of the Hebrew prophets Elijah and Elisha who were sent by God to foreigners. Jesus tells his hometown, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Luke goes on to write that the people in the synagogue are furious and drive him out of town and attempt to throw him off a cliff. The audacity of Jesus to proclaim that the Spirit of God is on him, that he is the anointed one who will bring restoration and that the kingdom of God is coming for foreigners, not to his own community, was absolutely shocking. Likewise, when Jesus told this parable of the banquet, there would be no way for his hosts and the other guests at the dinner party to miss the main message of this parable, that the invited guests would be the ones who missed the dinner party, that the outsiders would be invited in. There was no way to miss the message of the, that this dinner party, this banquet, was the banquet of God. When Jesus says, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet, he's talking directly to the Pharisees. They were on the verge of missing out on the most important invitation. Jesus is announcing good news. The kingdom of God is here and that all are invited to the banquet. The Pharisees and religious leaders did not need to miss out. All along, God had been working through Israel to be a light to the nations. God's intention from the beginning was to bless Israel and to bless their neighbors, to bless the Gentiles, to bless all nations. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And he goes on, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The intention was never to keep the good news to themselves, but to be active agents in blessing the nations. When we read this parable, I want to make sure that we don't miss the good news. We are all invited into the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter our background, what we have done, how much money we have, our health, our abilities, what country we come from, our gender, what kind of job that we have, the language that we speak. No matter what, we are all invited into God's kingdom. And for the majority of us in this room, we are the Gentiles that this parable was alluding to. We are the outsiders being invited into God's great story. The irony is that if the Pharisees had been listening with open hearts, they could have been convicted of their own rejection of the good news that Jesus was bringing and still have had a part in it. But their hardness of heart is shown in the excuses given by the invited guests. I bought a field. I bought oxen. I just got married. Even without knowing their culture, we know that these are weak excuses to decline the great dinner party that they had already RSVP'd to. They made weak excuses because of their hard hearts. 
Unlike the Pharisees, if we have open hearts, we can allow the voice of Jesus to convict us of the ways that we are tempted to reject the good news of Jesus, individually and as a society. As I said before, I really want us to grasp the good news of this passage for us, living in 21st century America. And there's also here, I believe, a warning for us as the American church not to be like the Pharisees. I've been thinking a lot about the state of Christianity and the church in America and society. I imagine many of you have been concerned with this as well. We're seeing rapid, unprecedented shifts in religious beliefs and behavior. In 2020, Gallup released a poll of statistics that for the first time ever in American history, under 50% of Americans belong to a church, synagogue, mosque, or other religious organization. In 1937, church membership was at 73% when the Gallup poll first began. And this percentage stayed consistent until about 20 years ago when it began to drop consistently. The percentage of Americans who identify as not religious has jumped from 8% in 2000 to 21% today. That's one in five people who don't consider themselves religious at all. And church membership is tied to age. Fewer than 35% of millennials and Gen Z follow any religion. Thousands of US churches are closing each year. These statistics, which I am sure you have already heard, should cause us to pay attention. And I'm sure that we've seen these statistics play out in real life with real people. We see the younger generation leaving the church. We all know dear friends and close family members who are leaving the church behind and have left organized religion. For those of us who love the church, broken as she is, this is a challenging time. And for some of us in this room, we may be on the verge of leaving the church ourselves. We're weary of infighting and politics. We wonder if we'll be the next ones to leave the church. It's not hard to see the parallels between the modern church and first century Pharisees. In all of our desire to seek God faithfully, it's still possible to lose our way. May we heed the example of the Pharisees and not miss out on Jesus today. I find great hope for the church when I'm at the International Friendship House, interacting with incredible believers from all around the world. I am encouraged by my friends from a variety of backgrounds, who are curious, open, eager to pursue truth and justice in the world. Each week at the IFH dinner, I look around the table and see an earthly glimpse of the heavenly future where every tribe, nation, and tongue will be gathered before the throne of God, praising God and giving Him the glory. I believe that God is offering the American church a great gift in this season, the gift of believers from around the world and from different cultures who can breathe new life into the church. Unlike the Pharisees, who are bound by their sense of both religious and cultural superiority, we have the opportunity of participating in the restoration that God is bringing to the church through our global community. Globally, we must remember, Christianity is growing. 2.56 billion people identified as Christian in 2022. By 2050, that number is expected to top 3.3 billion. And this growth is happening the fastest in the global south. Today, almost 1.1 billion Christians live in Africa and Asia alone. Christianity is growing faster in Africa than anywhere else in the world. But right here in our neighborhood, the world is converging. According to government reports, there are 26 languages spoken here in the university district, most commonly Cantonese and Mandarin. 43% of our neighborhood are people of color, and 35% speak a language other than English at home. 14% of our UW undergraduate students are international students. 
I don't know what will happen to the church in the future, but I do believe that God is offering the American church a gift, a promise of restoration as we welcome in international students, immigrants, and refugees. Jesus did not come to first century Israel to abolish the law and the prophets, but to reform, to draw them back to God's original intention for them, to restore them. As we invite God to bring reformation and restoration to the church, may we with humility open our eyes to the work of the Spirit, moving across cultures, and join Jesus in his mission of restoration as the multi-ethnic body of Christ. The first century ethnocentric Pharisees were expecting a Messiah who would come to rescue the Jewish people. The great surprise in Jesus was a Messiah who came to rescue all people. We read in the book of Acts that the church was born when the Holy Spirit came and breathed new spiritual life and power into the followers of Jesus. But even the church leaders were shocked when the Holy Spirit came and filled the believing Gentiles. From the very beginning, the church of Jesus Christ was open to all people from every nation. God has a track record of breathing new life into the church while calling his church to participate in breaking down racial and ethnic barriers. We can look forward in hope because God's work of restoration was completed through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Through Christ's work on the cross, we are invited to the banquet of God. As followers of Jesus, we journey from banquet to cross. This was the journey of Jesus. On the final night before his death, Jesus gathers in the upper room with his disciples for banquet, for the Passover feast. It was at this dinner party that Jesus laid out a model of radical hospitality. He humbled himself to wash his disciples' feet before the meal, and he took the bread and broke it and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we take communion, we symbolically reenact this banquet feast. We remember and celebrate that we have been invited into God's great banquet. So I ask you now, have you accepted the invitation to God's great banquet? There's still room at the table. You are invited in. And you can say yes today. As we pray, say yes to God. Say yes to this invitation. If this is your first time saying yes to Jesus, I invite you to come up for the after the service for prayer and let someone know that you've made this life-changing decision so that we can walk with you on this journey with Jesus. And for those of us who have said yes to this banquet invitation, then it's time to start welcoming others. There's still room at the table. There's always more room. God's great plan is to welcome everyone to the table, to bring all of us who were once outsiders in. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your good news is for all people, from every culture, from every background. May we join your work to bring those who feel like outsiders into the table. May we receive the power of your Holy Spirit to be filled with your love for neighbor and have the strength to break down the dividing walls of hostility that exist in our culture. Give us the strength that is only possible through you, Jesus, because of your powerful work on the cross. We say yes. Yes, to accepting your sacrifice for us on the cross. Yes, to joining you in your work of reconciliation in the world. Yes, to stepping out of our comfort zones. Yes, to expanding the banquet table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.